can barely contain my excitement this week, uh, and that's because we have an extraordinary guest on the podcast, Dr. Liza Toulousan. Uh, I came to learn about her work because she's a facilitator in the film I Am Not a Racist, Am I? Um, and, and you can learn that by going to www.notaracistmovie.com. Uh, Dr. Talusan has been a part of many extraordinary initiatives. So I just want to tell you up front that our show notes are going to have extra links this week. Uh, that's because I really want everybody to just do a deep dive into the work that, um, that Dr. Talusan has, has created. So without further ado, I'll let her introduce herself and we'll get started. Pronunciation of my name is Liza Talusan and my business is LT Coaching and Consulting. I'm a nationally recognized facilitator and strategic partner for schools and organizations seeking to build more diverse, equitable, and inclusive spaces and communities. Your work indicates that you have a real passion for helping both teachers and students have honest and uncomfortable conversations. Over your years of experience, how have you learned to best open learners up to being uh, willing to engage from a place of both authenticity and discomfort? One of the best ways that I've found to help people open learners up to being willing to engage from that place of authenticity and discomfort is to set out expectations that these conversations are difficult. We want to set up expectations that it's likely that you're going to screw up. We need to set up expectations that it's not going to be easy. When we can set up the expectation that it's going to be difficult, then people can anticipate the challenges. When we can anticipate the challenges, then we can actually address the skills that we need to be able to engage in difficult conversations. So the reason why I start with that is because I want to make sure that people understand that the moment they begin to feel uncomfortable is actually quite normal. What typically happens is the moment that people feel uncomfortable, they begin to withdraw. They go into panic. They think, I don't like this feeling. I'm out of here. I'm not having this conversation. And so for me, it really is about building this expectation that the conversation is going to be difficult. You are likely going to experience that discomfort soon and that you really need to stay in it because likely the other person is also feeling some sense of discomfort. For folks who are just beginning on this journey in this conversation, that's really where I start. The second piece is giving them some sort of way or framework to understand how a difficult conversation goes. So I typically give them the Courageous Conversations Protocol, um, and that was written by Glenn Singleton. And it's pretty easy to find online. I would find it very helpful in terms of framing what the, the ways in which people can stay engaged, experience discomfort, speak truth, and then expect and accept non-closure. I highly recommend that you look into that framework and protocol um, incredible resources from the Courageous Conversations website. So for folks looking for something very tangible, that is, an, again, another very helpful place to start. The final recommendation that I'd make is before you even get into that conversation, um, certainly having more reflective conversations with yourself. So if you're about, if you know you're entering into a conversation about race or particular racial groups, one of the things that keeps us from engaging are our own first messages or our own um, 
roadblocks or barriers that we've put up for ourselves. So in my workshops, I often have people follow a similar type of questioning like, what were your first or earliest messages about race? And were these positive messages? Are they negative messages? And what do you believe those early messages have? In what ways do they have an impact on how you approach or view race today? Um, if people are having conversations about particular racial or ethnic groups, I'll get even more specific. And again, you can see how this conversation could also be about gender, gender identity, sexual orientation, class. We have to spend a little bit of time thinking about what our own hangups are, our own first messages, our own barriers that keep us from engaging authentically in conversations. That's another great place to start, is trying to figure out how my first or earliest messages inform or impact the ways in which my, I do my work today. Our podcast is focused on helping educators understand the importance of LGBTQ plus inclusion. Uh, and something that I hear regularly is a concern that a teacher will, uh, quote, say the wrong thing when trying to be an advocate or when they're intervening uh, in a bullying situation, they don't want to... Uh, you know, again, in quotes, get it wrong. So what advice might you have for the reluctant ally? The advice that I would give for the reluctant ally um, is to really reframe what is reluctant. And uh, similar to advice that I give around difficult conversations, sitting down and really thinking out or mapping out or drawing out or writing out, why am I reluctant? I often ask people to think about the issues of conflict and risk in their life. So what are some first or earliest messages you have about conflict? For those of us who have negative messages about conflict, where conflict was seen as problematic or conflict was seen as um, disobeying or uh, rebelling against authority in bad ways, for many of us who have those messages, it makes perfect sense that as adults, if we haven't really uh, dug into those messages, we tend to do the same tactics we did as children. We avoid or we worry about being disobedient or we worry about offending. So I really do ask people to take some time to think about their relationship to conflict. Oftentimes being an ally means engaging in some sort of conflict. I then ask people to think about their engagement with risk. So what were your first or earliest messages about risk? For some of us, we may have... Uh, been in family relationships where risk was something that people did not take. And for many reasons, people don't engage in risky type behavior. And so how have you seen that growing up? How have you seen risk? Was it encouraged in your life? Was it discouraged in your life? And are there connections to you, how you see being an ally today? Being an ally requires conflict and risk. The piece about not knowing what to say or saying the wrong thing is often the very piece that keeps us from engaging. We worry that it has to be perfect. We worry about making sure that we don't use the wrong terminology. I often say to people, that's a false way, it's a, it's a false way of, of, of not engaging in the work because the truth is we will never know all of the right terminology. We'll never know all of the history behind certain words or every word or every racial group. There, there, there just isn't enough time to know all of it. Therefore, the skill that you actually need to build is how do I recover and how do I make amends and how do I make things right or how do I acknowledge my wrong when I have messed up? One of the examples I often give is that when someone has, for example, misgendered another person, 
or if someone uses the wrong name or mistakes somebody for the wrong race or whatever kind of mistake they've made. Oftentimes it sounds like this. Oh my gosh, I, I'm so sorry. Oh my, oh, I'm so sorry. I really didn't mean to. Oh, I feel like I'm so, I'm such a terrible person. I, I can't even believe I did this. I'm, I'm so sorry. I, 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 I. Okay. <laughs> that actually is understandable why we do that. We're feeling a sense of sadness, of embarrassment, of guilt, of shame. You can name all those different emotions. And when we overly apologize, we're centering our experiences. One of the things that I do in my workshops that are very uncomfortable is I ask people to turn to their partner and pretend we're in a scenario where you've just messed up. And you are not allowed to say more than three sentences. So we're resisting this. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. I'm so sorry. I can't even believe I did this. I feel so bad. Oh, oh my, you, oh, I'm such a terrible person. Stop. <laughs> so I have them practice things like, oh, my apologies. Thank you for correcting me. And not saying anything else after that. Or if you were to say one more thing, you know, oh, I'm so sorry. Thank you for correcting me. Is there anything I, you would like from me or anything you believe I should do or is something in particular you would request of me? Oh, my gosh. But after that, like nothing else, <laughs> unless the person wants you to say more. You have to center the needs or the hurt or the desires or the wishes or the trauma, whatever, of the other person. And the only way for you to do that is to stop focusing on your shame and guilt. Super, super hard. So I know the question was, you know, what do I do when I say the wrong thing? Or what if I don't know the right words? There just is not enough time in the day to go over all the terminology and all the ways that we could get things wrong. We can actually build skill on how do I admit that I have, have hurt someone, how do I admit my error, and how do we move on in a way that is best for the person that I've hurt. If we want students to be upstanders, we need them to see their teachers model that behavior. And sometimes school leaders or administrators, they might make it difficult for teachers to speak truth to power. Uh, some schools might have practices in place that really make it difficult for a teacher to challenge another teacher or for a teacher to, to challenge a member of the leadership team. So what shift do we need to see in schools in order to see more teachers feeling A, you know, aware of when they need to upstand and B, um, what, what shift do we need to see so that teachers can, can be more confident and understand that there is a need for them to be an upstander? In our work, we often ask students to be upstanders, that whenever they see something wrong in a peer interaction or in a social setting, that they should say something, that they should say, you know, I don't appreciate that, or please stop telling that joke, or I don't think that's funny. We give them tons of tools. But um, <laughs> we as adults often don't practice those same skills. Uh, sometimes we can say there's more at stake, although I remember being 12. I think I believed there was a lot at stake when I was 12. And we again, I go back to this notion of we have to talk about risk and conflict. So because diversity, equity, and inclusion require us to engage in risk and conflict, upstanding and its very core is about engaging in risk and potential conflict. You're standing up for something that is wrong. It is very true that in uh, organizational structures that there tends to be hierarchy. Along with that hierarchy comes some sort of rules of order or what's appropriate. 
And there's probably no better place to see that than in schools where we have this hypocrisy of wanting to encourage critical discourse and dialogue and productive disagreement. Yet oftentimes we don't see that possible structure between teachers and administrators and leaders and boards of trustees and heads of school, like it's pretty complicated. So um, one of the things that I believe has to happen is there has to be a critical mass. Um, I've often seen individual teachers, let's take examples of race and gender and gender identity, where individuals with a medium position of power have tried to stand up for uh, something that they believed in or something that was, you know, something socially we needed to change. And oftentimes when it's done by a single person, um, that person is then scapegoated. They're they're too passionate, or that's just one person who's upset about that, or um, they're upset about it because of this type of thing. And so we create individual stories to explain away why somebody might be advocating for a very legitimate cause. It is unfortunate, uh, but it happens in organizations where you do need to build some sort of critical mass or groundswell, where there needs to be some sort of effort to make change that goes beyond just the narrative of one person. Um, it requires a bit of organizing. It requires getting other people to understand why this matters. And my gosh, it, it requires people putting aside their own conflict and risk relationships. So when I think about teachers who are trying to change the system and trying to work up against um, its senior leaders or traditions of schools or policies, uh, it's important to, like I mentioned, create some sort of critical mass or at least a critical mass of vocal people who are willing to engage in risk and conflict. Uh, it takes some sort of explaining related to um, why this benefits the school. A term you're gonna wanna look up is called interest convergence. Ugh, it's like not the greatest term or the ways in which it, things need to happen. But in short, interest convergence tells us that um, people will be more likely to change if there's some sort of invested interest that they have in it too. Again, really important term. You should look it up. And so a strategic way of coming, uh, engaging in change is trying to help people understand what's in it for them. You can probably tell in my voice I'm like a little disgusted by that because people should change because it's the right thing to do and not just because they have an invested interest. But yeah, it's just it's sort of how this happens, unfortunately, in these current structures. So um, find your critical mass, find ways to help people understand why this matters and unfortunately what the benefit is for other people. And then being really strategic and holding people accountable. I've often seen too many times where there's going to be, there's a really big groundswell. They kind of take it to the senior leader and there's, it drops, nothing else happens with it. So being really mindful about how to hold senior leadership accountable is a really good way to continue to keep the issue on the forefront of the organization and decision makers. A school or organization might be misguided in calling itself inclusive. For an administrator who thinks of themselves as, as quite reflective, what suggestions or questions would you recommend they think about in order to reflect on whether or not their place of business actually is inclusive? 
Um, regarding when organizations consider themselves inclusive or use language of inclusivity, I want to really give a shout out to Dr. D.L. Stewart. Dr. Stewart wrote an article for Inside Higher Education called The Language of Appeasement. It was written in 2016. And though there have been um, articles that have given definition about uh, what diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice are, Dr. Stewart, um, in a very strategic and methodical and also very social, socially just-oriented way, really laid out these four components. So again, just another very important reference. I use this article all the time with senior leaders. I use this in my classes that I teach. It's called The Language of Appeasement Inside Higher Ed, written in 2016, Dr. D.L. Stewart. And in that article, Dr. Stewart really helps to outline the different, the ways in which the concepts of diversity, inclusion, equity, and justice are different. And I'm saying that because I caution um, school leaders. I go to a lot of schools a year, and many people are changing the names of their offices from the offices of diversity, for example, and dropping it completely to offices of equity. Um, And I know that's a very aspirational part of it, but what I worry about is that schools and organizations are failing to really locate themselves appropriately. In short, things a school or place that's committed to diversity um, is at a representational stage. So they're counting numbers. As Dr. Stewart asks in the article, it might be how many more of this group do we have this year than we had last year? Or um, how many, what's the increase of, you know, the students of color from this year, from last year? So it's very much about numbers. It's an important first step. Some of the organizations and schools really need to pay attention to numbers and representation. Presentation. Uh, Dr. Stewart then advises us that inclusion asks us some very different questions. So inclusion asks us questions like, um, does everyone feel like they belong or has everyone's voice been heard at the table? Uh, so that implies that people are at the table, but it, when they're there, is it, has everyone been heard? Does everyone feel included? Does everyone feel like they belong? Now, um, I would say that most of the schools and organizations that I've worked with are at the inclusion stage. You can probably notice the hesitation in my voice because this relates directly to your question. Inclusion is something that should be visible. Inclusion is action. Inclusion means that there's steps taken. So when a school says to me, hey, Dr. Toulousin, we're a really inclusive school, my first question to them is, well, what are the steps that you've taken? Tell me about the steps that you've taken. Uh, Some schools can tell me the steps that they've taken and some schools are like, what do you mean? (laughs) Like, well, inclusion requires action. So what action, what is actionable? What can I see? What have you done? Show me the steps and the protocols that you've taken that state that you're a more inclusive school. Um, And so for schools that believe themselves to be inclusive, for the reflective boss, I ask you to think about the steps that you've taken. I'm going to extend the question just a little bit further because while inclusion is great, uh, it's still it's still a, it still has a very like unbalanced power dynamic. If I'm including you in my school or including you in my group or including you in my decision making, I still have the relative power. I still have the power to decide whether you can be at the table or not. I still have the power to decide whether or not we study your history or not. So it still indicates a very strong level of power where one can still be included or excluded. 
what Dr. Stewart advocates for in the article, and I do in my work as well, is that we should really start thinking about equity and justice if we're committed to seeing change in this work. So equity and justice requires us to think about power. How do we redistribute power? Who has power? How, where is power located? What does power mean in our community? Um, those are all really different questions from diversity and inclusion. I often like to say, since we've talked a bit about conflict and risk, is that diversity and inclusion feel good. We usually, not always, of course, but we tend to feel good about diversity and we feel good about inclusion because who doesn't want to feel included? When schools begin to start talking about equity and justice, however, we have to start talking about conflict and risk. We have to start talking about power. We have to start talking about historical and current day oppression. So it's just a different conversation. And I know that we're talking about inclusion right now, but it tends to be the trajectory that people who are talking about inclusion also want to then soon enough want to talk about equity. So for the reflective boss, it's really important to think about what are the steps that we take. It's important to also ask those who typically are excluded whether they feel like they're included. It's all too easy for those of us in the majority to say, oh, we include everybody. And we should probably ask those who aren't included, those who feel the most excluded. That's also a very misstep in a lot of our work. Thank you so much for leaving us with that powerful provocation. Sometimes the, the simplest, but maybe the most eloquent next step is simply to ask, do you actually feel included? Uh, the article that was referred to in this episode, The Language of Appeasement, we've added that to our show notes. Uh, and please do just head on over to them right now and start checking out the work that um, that our, our special guest today has been involved in. Uh, it really is quite inspiring and I am so thankful and I feel a lot of gratitude that people uh, like Dr. Tullison are doing the work that they are doing. Thank you again. Thank you.